Hello, Andrew Gamison here with the Speaking for Him podcast. I hope that you are having a wonderful day wherever it is that you are. I am greeting you from the frozen north of Howard City, Michigan. Uh, we are about uh, to go into, as I'm recording this, uh, one of the coldest weeks probably the coldest week of the entire year, so I am not looking forward to that. But I hope that um, whatever the case is with your weather picture, that you are feeling um, the warmth and sunshine of God's love and grace in your life. Today I am very excited to share with you the story of a a new friend of mine, Amy Blackwell, who was featured on Unshackled, the radio ministry, just a few short months ago, and after I heard her on the program, I looked her up and found out that she had a podcast, and we connected over podcasting, and so I'm very excited that she has agreed to be on my show this week and to share her story with you. I think you will very much appreciate it, so please stay tuned for that. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about what is going on. Well, I actually have three stories that I want to talk to you about today. Two of them are very related. The first one that I want to mention is that uh, this past week, um, Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer said that winter full contact sports may resume here in our state. And I'm very excited about this for my students at the Potter's house. Um, I've heard a couple students, at least one in particular say that the reason they're still in high school is because of sports. Now, of course I encourage them that that's not a good enough reason to stay in school and that they need to stay in school because it will give them better opportunities in the world Once they graduate and they want to do the best that they can, however, it is telling that sports can be a motivator to help kids with their grades because you have to have a certain amount of, uh, of a certain level of GPA in order to compete in the high school athletic scene. So it is a very important part of a student's life. And with all the abnormalities that students have gone through in the year 2020 and now extending into 2021, I'm very glad that we are going to begin to see these sports resume. Um, And I want to share with you a couple clips. The first one was that on January 30th, there was a rally in downtown Lansing about this very issue. Hundreds of high school students, athletes, parents, and coaches all gathered at the Michigan State Capitol earlier today, protesting the current ban on winter sports. News 8's Dana White is live in the studio with us tonight. Dana, what was the main message they're trying to get across? Justin, those at the rally say playing sports is more than just an activity for them. They say it's therapy, a way to connect with friends, and a time to unplug. And now with winter sports being banned through February 21st, these student-athletes believe the current restrictions are just not fair. You're getting your season back. 
Hundreds of people at the state capitol today with one message. It's hard on us for, like, mental state and everything. I hope that our voices don't fall on deaf ears. The kids who, like, stay in the ghettos and all of that creates a way out for them. Tyler McLean is a ninth grader at Kalamazoo Central High School. He says not being able to play sports right now because of the pandemic is doing more harm than good. It's a lot of kids who, like, feel like they don't have a way out anymore and they, like, might have to rely on other stuff. That is like not good for them. It's really just a big stress reliever. Zach Dodson, a senior hockey player at Grand Rapids Christian. Being able to go out and skate and really just take your mind off everything. U.S. Representative Bill Heisinga also in the crowd. So one more time. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services banning winter sports in the state through February 21st, citing COVID-19 concerns. Officials say heavy breathing and close contact in a room for a long time will increase the chance of spreading the virus. But looking forward, these athletes and parents hope this date gets pushed up sooner, calling on the state to make a change. Hopefully these voices will help them remember how important those things are. I have to say that it was very gratifying to see people peacefully assembling for this purpose to let their voice be heard. And I do think that this made a difference because just a few days ago, Governor Whitmer said that these sports could continue. Our other top story at five. Governor Whitmer has given the go-ahead for high school sports to start again, and that's going to happen on Monday. Let's get out to Rod Maloney. And, Rod, this comes two days after that lawsuit was filed to try to force the state's hand. Well, there was that pressure and a whole lot more from a lot of different places, including the legislature, for the governor to relent on her February 21st date for high school sports. And today, she moved the goalposts. That will allow sports teams to begin in-person practice on Monday, February 8th, as long as masks are worn at all times. Teams can also compete in person with masks if possible, or where masks are not compatible with the competition, they will be allowed to compete without masks if certain strict safety protocols are in place. That means testing, which is expensive. There are other rules, too, like when students are not playing, masks are required at all times. Participants should remain six feet apart still. Attendance in the stands is limited to two spectators per athlete. When asked if the recent protest and lawsuit had anything to do with her decision, the governor said... None. And so there you have it, the governor saying that these sports can resume as of this past Monday, and I'm very grateful for that. But I want to draw your attention to something that this story pointed out. As I said, on January 30th, there was this rally, let them play on the state capitol. Congressman Bill Heisinger was involved, and he was very vocal in that rally, as you heard in the clip. Then a few days after that, Gretchen Whitmer does a press conference and says that the date for uh, full-contact high school sports for the winter season was moved up from February 21st to February 8th. But then when asked about whether the rally made any difference, she said none, that it had no influence on her, her decision to allow our high school athletes to play. And I just find this very interesting because, number one, a governor should care about their constituents. 
So if constituents come to a governor or any elected leader with a legitimate concern, they should care. And it just seems to me that she's so caught up in her own power and flexing her own muscles that she's not willing to admit that a rally at the Capitol could make a difference in the things that she says and the, and the things that she um, puts forth. And I really think that we the people, as we start to realize that um, these leaders of ours, in a sense, are trying to figure out how much we will let them get away with, um, but as we the people kindly and gently push back and say, enough's enough, I think we are making a difference. So I applaud those who have fought for high school sports around the country, and particularly here in my home state of Michigan. And I'm really excited to see um, the Potter's House Pumas take to the courts in just a little while in the basketball season and get things underway. I think this Let Them Play story um, gives me a good segue into this story, which is about one of the earliest executive orders that Joe Biden signed after becoming president, which was to allow transgender males to compete in girls' sports. And I have uh, some comments to make on this, but first I want to play you a story that ran on Fox News about this very issue. Of President Biden's first executive orders was to allow transgender athletes to participate in girls' sports. Quoting his order, children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom, the locker room, or school sports. So let's talk about the real-world impact of this action with a track athlete from Danbury, Connecticut, Alana Smith, and Alliance Defending Freedom Legal Counsel, Christiana Holcomb. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. I want to start by playing something uh, that your mom, Alana, said about you going into competition under these circumstances. Here's what she said. Alana and I were talking about what her strategy was going to be for the day. And she looked at me and said, Mom, it really doesn't matter because I'm running against the boys today. I won't win. So, Alana, what kind of position does this put you in as a biologically born female athlete? It's really disappointing because I know that me and all the other biological females work really hard at track practice and we work hours a day just to shave off tenths of a second for our times and it's just really disappointing to know who's going to win the race before it even starts. The ACLU says this, their deputy director for transgender justice, states that attempt to bar trans girls from sports, regardless of age or of transition, medical intervention, or anything else, with the new federal administration will now be risking lawsuits by the federal government, Justice Department intervention, and the loss of federal funding. So where does the legal fight go here, Christiana? Well, this order is an irresponsible abuse of power. It is unlawful and it effectively eviscerates women's sports for young women like Alana. Look, we already know what the impact of these policies are. We've seen it play out in Connecticut where two biological males have swiped 15 women's state championship titles over the course of just a few seasons. So this will have a devastating impact on women's sports if it's allowed to proceed. 
I want to read something from one of the transgender athletes who has been at the center of a lot of these conversations and cases, um, saying, running has been so important for my identity, my growth as a person, and my ability to survive in a world that discriminates against me. It's Andrea Yearwood. I'm thankful that I live in Connecticut where I can be treated as a girl in all aspects of life and not face discrimination at school. So, Alana, what is your message uh, to these athletes who say this is an important part of their life and their identity? I just want them to realize how unfair the situation was. Like, for example, at regionals, as a I'm freshman year, I should have gotten a silver medal. Instead, I received a bronze. And it's not really about the medal or the placement, but it's about knowing that all my hard work paid off. Because, like I said, we work, we spend hours a week training just to shave off the tiniest amount of seconds for our times. Mm -hmm. And it's just really disappointing to know that our hard work isn't really paying off how it should be. And I know uh, there are scholarships uh, that are in play a lot of times. Um, it's competitive. You're talking about a college education or the ability to get help with that. I want to play something from Kara Dansky from the Women's Human Rights Campaign. She is pretty far left, a feminist uh, who would describe herself as very far left. This is what she said earlier tonight when talking with Tucker Carlson. What this will have the impact of doing is obliterating women and girls' sex-based rights at a federal level. This is rank misogyny, and it is coming from the left. I thought that was a very telling uh, interview. First of all, talking to a woman who is involved in women's sports, women's track and field at a high school in Connecticut. So you're talking to someone who is affected by this. And I want to talk about a couple things. Number one, first of all, the Bible says that God made them male and female, that he had a plan for the way he made you. Um, if you want more information on this, you can look back a few weeks ago when I reviewed the documentary In His Image. It explains it far better than I've ever heard it explained before. But the Bible truth is clear. Jesus reiterates this truth from Genesis in the New Testament when he says, when he talks about marriage and he says he made them male and female and then he made them to live together in the covenant of marriage. That's very clear biblical standard. But even apart from that, I think anyone with any sense of intelligence realizes that someone who is biologically male has a stronger bone structure and a more athletic build overall in general than does a woman. That is essentially why women's sports exist, because it was realized fairly early on that it is not possible for a woman in general, again, there are exceptions, but in general it is not possible for a woman to compete on an even playing field with a man. I think that even if you are someone who would believe that this is a legitimate lifestyle choice, you would still have to say that it is not acceptable for them to compete together. And we saw that at the end of the Fox News piece that I played because we, we heard a clip from a far-left feminist who, in many ways, I'm sure I would disagree with. She's very pro-abortion, very far-left, and yet she's saying that this is effectively the end of women's sports as we know it if we allow this to go forward. I want you to consider this, if you will. When I was a young boy, and also a little bit as a teenager, I was involved in competitive athletics for people 
with disabilities. And every year, when, before we would start practicing for competition, one of the things that would happen is we would have the opportunity to qualify for the events that we are preparing for. And one of the main ways that we qualified was figuring out what class we belonged in. They had eight classes. They were numbered one through eight based on skill level. As someone who used an electric wheelchair, I was automatically classified class one. What was the purpose for this designation? Uh, because I could not compete on an even playing field with someone in a racing chair. Someone in a racing chair would beat the pants off me in a race. Because even though I like to say that I'm a speed demon, um, I like to sometimes call myself Speedy Gonzalez, ultimately my chair tops out far slower than people who use racing chairs. So we're talking about different levels of competition. And in my experience as a disabled athlete, I know that someone who is class eight getting out there on the track, um, against me, they would, they would beat me. It would just be a fact. So it was understood that in order to have a fair competition, I had to compete with people who had like skills to me. And I think the same thing is true here, that even if you believe that transgenderism is an acceptable lifestyle, you would have to believe in the spirit of fair competition that they should have to compete separately from the women for it to be fair. Because in a hypothetical scenario, consider the fact that someone who is not fast enough to be among the top men comes to women's track and field and then says, I am a woman and then starts winning all these awards because they're beating people who have less physical ability than them because there is a difference between men and women. And I think one of the problems that we have here goes back to that understanding. The fact that for years now, it's been almost offensive anytime you talk about men and women being different. And since we've deemed that offensive, we've opened the door for all of these other things, including biological men competing in women's sports as women because they feel like they are women. But you can't make yourself a woman. God does not make mistakes when he makes people. He chose if you're a man or a woman. And he has great plans for you based on the gender that you are. 
No gender is superior to another gender. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but they have specific roles that God calls them to play. So I just want to encourage you today to realize that men and women are different, to embrace that, and to be able to articulate that in the public square. The final story I'd like to talk to you about today is this story from the Los Angeles Times, Supreme Court rules California churches may open despite pandemic. The Supreme Court has lifted California's ban on indoor church service during the pandemic, ruling Gavin Newsom's strict orders appear to violate the Constitution's protection of the free exercise of religion. The justices made a 6-3 decision, and they granted the appeal late Friday night from a South San Diego church that has repeatedly challenged the state restrictions on church service, including its ban on singing and chanting. The ruling set aside decisions by federal judges in San Diego and San Bernardino and the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, which upheld the state's orders despite earlier warnings from the high court. But the high court said the state may limit attendance at indoor services to 25% of the building's capacity and singing and chanting may be restricted as well. So we have this situation where finally the people of California will have a chance to go to their churches to worship together. And I'm excited about that. You know, I've said this the whole time that the ability of people to go to their church does not mean that you have to go if you are uncomfortable. But it's a great victory for those of us who believe that it is not in the best interest of a state for a governor to decide whether people should go to their houses of worship. Now, my church has been at about 60% capacity um, since reopening in June after the the initial COVID shutdowns. And that is by the choice of the parishioners who are joining us on Zoom. I have zero problem with that. But I think it set a dangerous precedent to say that the governor of the state could decide whether we could worship. And so I'm very pleased with this decision. Um, It kind of went down the expected lines as a 6-3 to decision. Um, The six conservative justices in the majority differed among themselves, but they agreed that California had singled out churches for unfair treatment. Some of the statements included, since the arrival of COVID-19, California has openly imposed more stringent regulations on religious institutions than on many businesses. And that's what Neil Gorsuch said. California worries that worship brings people together for too much time, yet California does not limit its citizens to running in and out of other establishments. No one is barred from lingering in shopping malls, saloons, or bus terminals. And then Gorsuch, along with Justice Clarence Thomas um, and Samuel Alito, voted to lift all the restrictions, including limits on attendance and singing. Justice Amy Coney Barrett said she was not convinced the ban on singing should be lifted. 
the state argued that singing in a group indoors will spread the airborne virus, and Barrett said that churches had the burden of establishing their entitlement to relief from the singing van, ban. In my view, they did not carry that burden, at least not on this record. And Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh agreed with her. So there was some individuality of thought within this decision, but the decision was made, nonetheless, to open California churches. The Bible does say to us in Hebrews, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And, you know, one thing that I've said throughout this whole journey is I feel like there are some legitimate reasons for taking safety measures as we deal with this virus, especially early on when we knew very little to nothing about it. But at the same time, I feel like the devil is having a field day when it comes to people dealing with this pandemic. Because the devil's desire for us is disharmony. The devil's desire for us is distance. The devil's desire for us is to, is to not rely on one another as the Bible tells us to do. And to not be around each other to spur one another on to good works. That is the devil's desire. It is my privilege today to have with me in my virtual studio here on the Speaking for Him podcast, Amy Blackwell. I first heard about Amy through Unshackled in September of last year, and I noticed after looking her up that she had a podcast of her own, and so I connected with her over that, asking her if I might be able to be a guest on her podcast and I'm hoping that still happens in the future, but I have asked Amy this week to be a guest here on the Speaking for Him podcast, and I'm really excited to hear more about your story, Amy. So thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, uh, I'm just going to start by reading a verse, which I kind of have chosen for my quote of the day. I try to give people either a quote from a Christian leader or maybe a piece of literature, but most often a Bible verse that I think that goes along with the show. And today's is from Romans three twenty three and 24 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as I listened to your story, I really, um, felt like that was something that uh, comes through loud and clear. And so I'm really excited to hear more of your testimony. So let's kind of start at the beginning. Talk a little bit about your growing up years. Yeah, well, growing up, I I had a great um, childhood as far as, you know, what I would consider a great childhood. Um, I was homeschooled from third grade on. I lived on a dairy. And so, uh, I was pretty much just in my own little world. Um, and uh, my parents were married, still married, and I had a brother. So um, 
yeah, for the most part, it was all about, um, going to church and working as a family. Uh, my daddy, he was all about work, 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 and you do the best that you can. And, um, but one of the things that, uh, probably, um, I, I always say the, if I could sum up my childhood with one negative word, it would be, um, panic because, um, as a kid, I grew up where, um, my dad was real hard on us and my mom too, not my mom. She, he was hard on my mom also. <clears throat> and so when you're a little kid and you're a, you tend to gravitate towards pleasing people and, um, you know, you want your home to be peaceful, then that was, um, my job. It was to make sure daddy was happy. And, um, gosh, I remember eight, nine, 10, 11 already, um, already in that mindset where when I woke up every day, it was about, okay, what can I do to make everything run smoothly? So daddy doesn't get mad. And, but if you would have asked me, you know, about my childhood, then I would have just said, Oh no, it's perfect. My family's great. And, um, I just didn't comprehend that what I was going through was verbal abuse at times. All right. Well, uh, you, one thing that came out when I listened to your story on unshackled and you kind of alluded to it in the first answer was how important perfectionism was to you. And that the idea was put forth that, uh, being perfect in essence was the way to please God. And mm-hmm. we know that that's not possible from a human perspective, but talk about how that began in your life and what, what made that dangerous for you? Oh gosh. Yeah. Looking back now, it's very obvious, but, um, no, growing up, I, uh, you know, I had my earthly father who, if I did all these things, good and to the best of my ability, I received praise. So, um, you know, I, I loved God and I, I got saved when I was about 10 years old. And, um, but I always struggled with, am I saved? Am I really saved? Did I say it right? And so it was at a young age that I constantly, um, was making, you know, am I good enough? And so I would, um, look at other people's lives and I would go, okay, well, I don't want to do that. I'll never do that. So God, I'm going to show you that I'll be better than everybody else. Like I'm going to, I'm going to prove to you that I'm, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm worthy, I guess could, I could say. Um, so yeah, it's constant panic. It was like, I would get nervous if uh, there was a song that would come on that was worldly. I mean, I, I would get panicky about, okay, well, should I watch this? Should I not watch this? And this started at a young age. And so, but because my daddy was so strict on so many things, um, you know, if we left the house and if my mom went shopping and bought something she shouldn't, it was just, just a constant panic. Like, okay, I have to do this to be in right standing with my, my daddy on, you know, my earthly father. So I was constantly in panic. Like I need to do this, this, and this, and this for, for God to look at me and be pleased with me. And because at a young age, I I really, that's all I cared about was pleasing God and doing what he wanted me to do while I was here on earth. And I talk about um, David in the book um, and David was somebody I looked up to. And even though he had messed up so much, David did, 
um, later on in life, I would look at his story and I thought, well, it's different um, because of, I guess, David and God's relationship. But um, yeah, it just, it created this, um, I knew I was saved, but I did not understand what grace truly was because I never could accept it. Um, and I thought I had to, I had to work for it. So obviously this dramatically affected your relationship with God. It's interesting that you brought up David, uh, because with all of his failures, he is still referred to in the book of Acts after he's been gone for hundreds of years as a man after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what an encouragement that is to us. And it's, it's really sad that as you were growing up, you couldn't see that God had the same view of you through Jesus. And so one of the things we see in your story as it unfolds is that you had quite the series of relationships with uh, different men in your life. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how your warped view of God kind of impacted that and how that unfolded? Yeah, well, well, first, I, I mean, I was 14 years old, and that's when my parents met. So I was constantly at a young age, like, okay, I've got to get married. And so um, I always thought I had to have a boyfriend. So I had multiple boyfriends and um, never really was with someone that I, I guess, chose myself because I was always looking through the lens of my dad of who he wanted me to be with. But yeah, I ended up um, getting married to a man that was, he was about six years older than me. And, um, you know, I thought it's what I was supposed to do. And he actually was from a good family. And so I thought, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And my daddy, um, you know, gave permission, uh, for me to get married. And, um, yeah, I just went from my dad's home to my husband's home. And, um, and then at that point, you know, I was focused on being a, um, godly wife. And, um, actually I took advice from Billy Graham and, um, Billy Graham is, has always in his ministry, he would make sure he was never alone with the woman. So I was so protective of my family and my marriage, but, um, I did not still have any knowledge of, of what was going on in my head and my heart at that age. And so, um, I didn't realize that, uh, there were things inside of me that were going to bubble up to the surface eventually. And I honestly, what I feel in my heart is that if my dad wouldn't have died, um, at a young age, then I would have probably not drifted so far, but, um, yeah, um, drastically changed whenever, um, my dad passed away a year after I got married. So your dad passed away the year after you got married the first time. Yes. And so that's whenever, um, I just kind of like, I don't know. It was weird how I just really didn't care about living at that point. Like didn't want to have kids because everything was about my daddy, my daddy, my daddy. And so whenever you take away your, um, I guess you call it your little God. I never saw my dad as my little God, but, but it really was. It's like, he was, um, his authority, his, um, his words, his advice, everything was directed through what my daddy wanted me in my life to have, because I never thought I could do anything on my own and that my, my opinions weren't relevant because, you know, I'm supposed to please everyone. I'm supposed to make everyone happy and do everything. And I think 
um, even though I didn't know it at the time, it's like, I think I just kind of rebelled against all of that without knowing I was doing it, if that makes sense. I can see that a little bit. I'm very grateful that I have a father who taught me how to love and honor God and also was very quick to ask for forgiveness and admit that he wasn't perfect because that's Mm -hmm. definitely the way that I have approached my relationship with God. So I really think it's important for us to realize for those of you in the audience who may be fathers, the way that you uh, raise your children will have an impact on the way that they see God, whether you intend for that or not. So it's just a word of caution and something to be aware of. Yeah. And and I want to make a note too. And of course all this is in the book, but um, my daddy did apologize when I was about 16, I think. Um, And this is where I learned the flat mentality because, um, well, when I was little and there was fighting and all that chaos in the home, I would run and hide in the closet. And um, so I didn't realize also that I was creating all these triggers (laughs) that later would come out when I was an adult. But um, he actually saw me leave and I didn't want to come home. And so I think that that was a wake up call for him. And he did apologize. And from then on, you know, I, he did, he, I never saw fighting in the the home anymore, but the damage had already been done. Although I did not know um, that there had been, um, you know, some damage done and things written on me. And that's the one thing I want to say to parents and what I'm aware of now is that if there is abuse or chaos or something that's happened in your home and you say you're sorry and you move on with life, but yet if you don't sit down with your child and, you know, work out things and struggles and notice behaviors and panics and triggers, um, it's important to get that help while they're younger instead of wait till they're, you know, run their life off into a ditch. And then you're like, Oh, well, why are you acting this way? And then, then it comes out later on. So that's just something I'd, say for parents to keep a an eye on so now you're married to will and how long have you guys been married we just well that's you know how long we've been we've been together married for 10 years and of course we we were divorced so um, but we still go off of our original anniversary that's awesome how how um talk a little bit about how god worked in in your marriage to bring you guys back together and how he makes you strong today. Okay. Well, first, a little back note. Um, after I, I divorced my first husband, um, I, that perfectionism thing was shattered in me because, oh my gosh, I've divorced and um, I'm never going to be used again for God. And so I went down this long road of one marriage after the, another and another and another. And just um, when you are living a hopeless life, and you don't value yourself and you can't see yourself through the lens of God, then you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to put yourself in situations. And uh, a lot of things happen to me and um, it's because of that mindset. So yeah, I ended up um, after my third divorce, um, I met Will and we've been, I guess, married for 10 years, but in between there, we have um, gone through a couple separations and we did divorce And, um, and so, and there was, you know, on my part, there was, uh, affairs and um, there was some abuse in the marriage and, um, 
you know, a lot of things were triggered in me and I just ran. But one thing about me is I didn't have this self-esteem and the self-worth I had. So, um, I was very vulnerable and allowed, um, you know, men to come into my life that, um, instead of God, um, lifting me up, I was looking towards earthly men to fulfill what I needed. And so, and then I would, I would just leave, I would run, um, and something would happen in our home and, uh, I would just run away. And that's, you know, I've been doing that since I was a kid running away, <laughs> uh, running in the closet. I did that a lot. And, um, but gosh, we've, we've been through so much and we were divorced and I had um, married a man who, uh, for just a short, short amount of time that actually, um, he was a part of, of our marriage breaking up and, he was actually a career con artist um, and a lot of craziness with that. But it's, I look back now, it's been four years and I'm just like, wow, with all the mess that happened, God, where he has me and Will today is just like, that's totally a God thing. But God had to put me in a situation to where, you know, I completely ran my life off the deep end and I lost everything and I lost, you know, money, children, all of it. And, um, I say children, but you know, it was just for a, a short time when I was trying to get myself together for a couple of weeks. And, um, but still it's just, that was, I've always wanted to be a mother. So things like that, like, um, God had to remove everything from me for me to see who he was and how he thought of me. And so, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's been four years. And in that, um, we got back together and, um, we, uh, it was a little, a little hard at the beginning. Cause I was chasing after God, like fully surrender. I mean, it's, I, I've said surrender before so many times in my life, but like, until you fully surrender, you, you realize that you've been lying to yourself all the other times that you said, Oh, I surrender to God. Yeah. Surrender is fully everything and you're all in and you don't know what tomorrow holds, but you trust him. And that's where I got. Um, and so Will and I, um, it was pretty rocky there for a while. And, um, but, um, the closer I got to God, you know, it, it was, it was a struggle because Satan was coming in at the, the, um, the part of my husband and using that weak spot. And, but I kept trusting God because I'm like, you know, I know you wanted us to remarry. I know this is for you. I know our family is important and that you're in this and you have a plan. And I just trusted him. And within the last year, I've just watched God completely transform my husband as far as him and God's the intimacy with them too. And I will say, if anyone's listening, if you've had someone that has, um, maybe it's an affair or something where your marriage, um, was shaken up and destroyed over something. If you're trying to fix your marriage, you cannot go into it thinking it's going to work. If you are still constantly bringing up stuff. And on this last time, that's the one thing that he was like, if, if we're going to make this work and I forgive you and I truly forgive you, he has not, it's been four years and he has not brought up anything. Um, actually, uh, this is kind of representation of what Jesus did for us. He pays our debt. And I think Jesus was trying to like, okay, Amy, I'm going to, tr- I'm trying to show you what I, what I 
what I feel for you. And he, sometimes he uses other humans. So like, um, with this con artist and everything that came in, uh, he, he went through all of every, you know, penny that I had and then used up credit cards and everything else. So I had a lot of debt and I had never had debt before. So Will came in and graciously like took over everything. And he has not once, one time said anything about it. And that is representation of what Jesus has done for each of us. He's come in, paid a debt that he did not deserve, that he did not rack up. And he does it without ever saying a word. So that's my reminder of how much God loves me is that he would use other people around me to show me that in a human form. That is so good of a reminder because we, uh, from a human perspective as believers, we love God's grace in our lives, but then it's hard for us to extend it to other people. And that's why uh, Paul wrote that we should forgive others even as Christ has forgiven us because Christ forgive gave us the ultimate thing, which is turning our backs on God. And in this era that we're living in, even in the church, it seems like people look for reasons to um, leave their marriage partners. And the Bible says that God puts marriage together for an example to Christ and the church. And so if I mm-hmm. can encourage um, one thing, it would be to remember that your wedding vows, while they are to each other, they are primarily to Almighty God. And so I hope that this story that Amy is sharing today encourages those of you who may be struggling in your marriage and that you will give it to God and watch him work. So you went through this process, this long process, and about four years ago uh, you fully surrendered to the Lord. So talk about the decision to write a book. How did that come about? Well, that's a crazy thing. It's like part of closer to the end of the book. Um, I talk about this, but I'll, I'll touch on it. Um, I I was, when I surrendered, I, every Bible study, everything that was brought to my attention, I went and I was seeking, I was searching and I'd, you know, we always read the scriptures about, um, the, uh, armor of God, but I really wanted to really know what it was so I could apply it. And, um, so we were finishing up that study and a lady came to our church and was wanting to do this burdens to blessing study with us. And, um, she was talking about the lady who wrote the book and I was just like, Oh wow. This, she, this sounds exactly what, you know, I, I'm going through that. I was already kind of starting that process as she was talking about. Well, then they said she was having a seminar in Georgia and, you know, I had never done anything like just up and flew somewhere for a Bible study, but I found myself in Georgia that was the amazing part is that God really does um, care about the little things. And so like at the end of this process, there was a crown. And of course, um, my past story was um, competing for Mrs. Texas for four years, trying to perfect myself, um, getting that crown. But um, she's like, you know, all along your, your crown's been in your mess. And um, she uh, had a, a bag on the table that, represented, you know, a bag with all of our mess in it. She said, look in the bag. And so we looked in there and it was a crown. Well, I lost it because it was just like that one little dollar crown. And then it was, God saw me as his princess. I was his, I was royalty. So, um, Kim kind of took me under her, Kim Crable is the writer of the book and she kind of took me under her wing. And, um, so I just followed her and, 
you know, I said, I, I want to write my story down so my kids will have it. That was the goal. Um, one thing about me is I'm, I'm not educated. And so, uh, you know, I did, I never learned the way to like write things out, sentences, periods, punctuations, all of that stuff. Like I've, I've learned a lot since I've been in school, but, um, I'm still far from it. So writing a book was never in my mind because there is no way I could have made sense, but I started writing it and, um, I would, uh, she told me just to write it and I was going to print it off and just save it for the kids. Um, then I went to, uh, I, I do a lot of pro-life, um, anti-abortion ministry type stuff. And, um, there was a radio station over in Shreveport, Louisiana, kind of an hour away from us. And, um, they wanted me to come over and just kind of share my story about, um, saving my daughter from abortion. And so I went over there and, um, I was sitting there and the guy that was, um, uh, his name was Stephen Parr and he's looking at me and he's like, I'm sorry. He's like, are you writing a book? And I'm like, no. And he said, I just feel like, like this just came to my mind that like you're, you know, writing the, I said, well, I'm writing my story down for my kids. And he was like, really, I want to hear. I mean, he didn't know me. He like, he wanted to hear it. Well, I was embarrassed because this guy, well-educated man. And I'm like so embarrassed to send him my word document where all the red stuff is like all the um, imperfections. Right. But I did, I sent it and he's like, that needs to be published. I mean, of course, you know, finished it. It was, it was a mess. I still have the original one that I sent him and it was just, I had just started it. He said, people need to hear your story. Women, especially women need to hear your story. So I started the process and I was like, Lord, I have not one clue what I'm doing, but you apparently have this plan. And I just worked on it here and there. And then, um, you know, I had people praying for me when I would think, okay, this isn't what God wants. Something else would happen. And someone else would say, Hey, I would love to read your proof or your, you know, what you're working on. And they would say, yes, that's, you've got to publish this. And so long story short, which is a lot of God moments throughout that, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I look up and I actually have a book and I still can't believe it. It just shows you that, you know, God takes care of all the little things that we lack. That was part one of my interview with Amy Blackwell. I was very encouraged by this conversation and I'm excited to share with you part two next week. In the meantime, I would encourage you to check out Amy's book, The Testimony I Never Wanted, and her Unshackled Episodes along with her podcast, Unwanted Testimony. I will link all of these things on my blog. Until next week, this is Andrew Gomison saying, keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.